Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey everyone, it's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is the inimitable Tony Goldwyn, a phenomenal screen and voice actor, Peabody Award-winning director, and an incredible philanthropic force for good in the world. Tony has played iconic characters in films like The Last Samurai, to the Divergent films, even to the voice of Tarzan in Disney's animated Tarzan, but you might know him best from his, shall we say, spicy portrayal of President Fitzgerald Grant III on Scandal. Tony is a born and raised Angelino and a child of Hollywood, the son of an actor mother and a producer father. He joined the family business and pursued a career in acting, eventually getting his breakout moment as Carl Bruner, the antagonist of the 90s insta-classic Ghost, one of my personal favorites, by the way. From there, he went on to perform myriad roles in TV, film, and on the stage, including in one of my favorite performances I was able to see on Broadway pre-pandemic, Network, also starring Bryan Cranston and Tatiana Maslany. Oh, you guys, it was phenomenal. But those aren't the only ways he's followed in his family's footsteps. Like his parents and grandparents, Tony is also an avid philanthropist. He sits on the board of three separate charity organizations. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also an ambassador for Stand Up to Cancer, a nonprofit that is dedicating to funding cancer research, treatment, and cure options. Today, we're going to find out more about his life, his career, his pursuit of his own creativity, his advocacy, and more. Enjoy. Hi, Tony. I'm so excited to have you today. Hi, Sophia. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for being willing to join me from your vacation. It's, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, where we are, it's quite kind of remote. And I was just taking a walk on the beach with my daughter and the seagulls are all hatching and there are all these baby 
baby seagulls, you know, walking around. I took some pictures of them. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. So it's interesting. You, you know, you were just talking about um, things that you're doing with your daughter. And I always really like to find out who the folks that sit across from me were when they were kids. Because I think, you know, I, I look at you and immediately think of all the things I've seen you in. And, and I wonder when you're so well known as an adult, um, were were you similar to the Tony the world knows? You know, were you this poised um, intellectual performer as a kid, or or were you very different from from the man we know now as a child? Oh God, no! Well, I don't see myself that way. <laughs> no, but I know what you're asking. No, no, not at all. I was not. I was sort of. Um, it wasn't a thing when I was growing up, but I probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD, you know, like a lot of creative mm. people um, when I was a kid. So I was uh, unable to concentrate, mm-hmm. bouncing off the walls in school, kind of the class c- clown as a little kid. Mm. Yeah, really unable, quite undisciplined and unable to focus on anything. And honestly, until I discovered uh, acting, mm. uh, which was like in high school. And before that, I didn't feel like I was good at anything specifically. Like, mm-hmm. I was okay at sports, but I wasn't, like, one of the best kids at sports. I enjoyed aspects of school, but other things, if it didn't grab my interest, I just couldn't get it done, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and then, I, I don't know, like, the first time I was in a school play, I was able to, f- like, laser have laser focus for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. which was very freeing in a way, you know, but no, but as a kid, I I was, yeah, I was kind of all over the place. Yeah. I, when I was in fifth grade, I used to get put what they called out of block a lot. Our desks in the classroom were in this sort of rectangular block and the teacher taught in the center. It was was cool because the class was small, but (laughs) for chatting with my friends and like, you know, being like, look at the bird and look what's outside the window. They were, they constantly were taking my desk out of block and putting me against the wall to isolate me. So that might be something a lot of us, uh, you know, circus performers have in common. I think so. I think it's pretty, yeah. Most people I know are like that. Mm. And I, yeah, I spent a lot of time in, in the principal's office. What, what was it that first inspired you to get on stage? What made you sort of take up that pastime as a kid? Uh, yeah, honestly, it was because my big brother did it. I mean, I think mm. I'd always been attracted to performing, I think, like in, I always liked, you know, in elementary school when we'd have singing, mm-hmm. you know, like chorus, I think I always loved doing that. Or And in my middle school, there was a choir that actually was a part, so I, I enjoyed it. I don't know, I just I never knew it was a thing. And then my older brother, when I went to high school, we were at the same school and he was two years older than me and I kind of idolized him. And he was kind of, he was always in the lead in all the school plays. Mm. So I just thought, well, I'll try that. And um, the first, yeah, so in ninth grade, I auditioned for the fall play and um, was immediately, instantly, it was like being shot, you know, with with a drug or something. I mean, just the audition, I actually didn't get, I didn't get the part, but I remember sitting, reading with the drama teacher, 
reading this play Inherit the Wind from, you know, like someone older than me got the part, but I was just like, oh my God, I know how to do this. Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, then I was sort of instantly addicted to it. Yeah. Do you think there's something kind of inherent in your DNA about it? I mean, you, you grew up the child of entertainers, the, you know, the grandchild of entertainers, you know, the, the Metro Goldwyn Mayer, like, do you think there's something, was there just like something in the water <laughs> or, or was it something that you just got to witness from the inside? And so perhaps it felt a little more possible. I guess so. Um, my sort of, I am from a total showbiz family, but it sort of was divided between theater on my mother's side and the movies on my father's side. Mm. And uh, my grandfather that you referred to was one of the pioneers of the movie business, Samuel Goldwyn, mm -hmm. who I mean, literally started in 1912 or whatever it was, you know. Like an actual uh, legend. And, and he really, he really wasn't in a very long career up to, he retired like right about the time I was born. Um, and I kind of, because he was sort of so famous, I wanted nothing to do with Hollywood. I grew up in LA and thought, get me out of here. I just want to do something different than all this showbiz stuff. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't drawn to it at all as a kid. Mm -hmm. My mother's father was a very successful Broadway playwright in the mm -hmm. 1920s and 30s, who became a very successful screenwriter as well. Like a lot of of the, you know, New York playwrights would come to Hollywood to make money, you know, during the Depression and stuff. And he was quite a successful Broadway playwright. So he wrote a lot of wonderful movies. And uh, one of them was Gone with the Wind, wow. which he actually, he died in a tragic accident in 1939 at the year he won, he won a posthumous Oscar uh, that wow. year. So he was also in the movie business. And ironically, he worked, he was under contract. His name was Sidney Howard. And he was under contract to Sam Goldwyn. So my, both my grandfathers worked together and made some great films together. Wow. And then their kids ended up marrying each other years later. But anyway, so but the, he was much more a creature of the theater. And mm. my mom had been an actress as a young woman. So I was kind of, for me, the theater was what inspired and drew me. Like I started going mm. to the theater with my parents when I was a little kid. I, I was always just fascinated by it and drawn to it. And it was always very romantic to me. And when I first came to New York and went to a Broadway play, I was my mind was blown. Yeah. But I, I didn't actually make the connection like, oh, I want to do that. But I was it was a magical space for me, you know, and the and I knew a lot of a lot of my parents' friends were theater actors. They weren't really I didn't ever know movie stars growing up because they tried to keep us away from all that. Um, mm -hmm. sort of being a Hollywood kid. I literally never met one movie star as a kid. <laughs> or never was on a movie set. They just kept it very they want did not want us to be you know, that could be a treacherous world for kids. So, um, mm -hmm. but in terms of their friends, a lot of them were actors who were kind of New York theater actors or, you know, not movie stars, but so, mm -hmm. and that always was very romantic to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the sort of images that come up for me when I listen to you tell the story are those, you know, amazing like nights walking through New York, leaving the theater and a, you know, a late dinner in a bistro and lively conversation and everyone's kind of in the mix and it, it feels creative and, and really alive and how fun that you got exposed to all of that and, and not tossed into being a business person when you were still a kid. 
Yeah, I was, I mean, I'm grateful to my parents, you know. So, like, mm-hmm. my parents were divorced. So my dad's world was very much, he, he sort of followed in his father's footsteps and was, a, you know, a successful producer. And, mm. and that was very much his job. But he, did, he just did not want his kid. He, you know, my dad grew up right in the red-hot center of the golden age of Hollywood. And I think it almost, you know, it was very rough on him. Uh, you know, every night their their house was a place of business, mm-hmm. and every night was a dinner party with movie stars. And the, you know that my grandfather's business was the center of his life, and my grandmother was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, being a Hollywood hostess and all, you know, it was just like yeah. their dinner table was a place of business. Uh, you know, it was mm-hmm. just the way it was. And so my dad, as a kid, you know, that was he was definitely. I mean, they, he had a, he loved his parents, but he was definitely in second position. And so he never wanted his kids to suffer the pain that he suffered Mm -hmm. in that way. So as far as I knew, my dad could have done anything. He could have been in any kind of business and I wouldn't have known any differently. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, my mom's household was, my mother was a painter and her, my -hmm. stepfather, whom she married after my parents split up, was also a painter. So our house was like a bohemian like <laughs> gathering place, you know, it was, it was all crazy artists and actors and musicians. And yeah, it was just a very different vibe. And I love that, you know, so that, I felt those were more my people in, in a way. Mm. So that when I kind of discovered what you just mentioned of the New York theater community, which is a real community, which now I'm a part of, you know, it was, that's sort of where I started out as an actor that felt more like when I started discovering that, I was like, oh, well, these are my people, right? Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. What what kind of a painter was your mom? She did a lot of, uh, it was, you know, abstract, did a lot of watercolors, mm. but they tended to be abstractions of, of sort of still life. My stepfather was also a painter. Actually, that's, a, that's his painting behind us. You can sort of see that's oh, one of wow. his that he did like back in the 70s. <laughs> but then I have some of my mom's work in this house, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. But, you know, we lost, I lost both of them mm. quite a while ago in the 90s. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, she was a wonderful, her work was beautiful. That's so cool. How special, too, to have, to be able to have that on the wall. And I, I think about that, you know, when I look at photos of my grandparents who are no longer mm-hmm. with us. And, um, you know, I have old letters my granddad used to send to me. And I think about uh, my dad was a photographer for his whole career. And I think about how someday right. like it will be his photographs that I have and I, and I'll, you know, feel like he's still in the house. So I think there's something really uh, kind of sacred about being able to create, to make art that, you know, can stay with people. And when I get really in my feelings and, and sort of esoteric about what we do, I think back to, you know, before there was written language and the way that humanity passed itself down was to, you know, perform these stories around fires, probably in caves. And I, I can like really get out there <laughs> with it. No, I'm with But you. I think there's something so, there's just something so incredible about um, the legacy of storytelling. And, and I think what a neat thing that you know, talk about a movie script, like, you know, your grandfather's working together and then eventually their kids got married. Like it's, it feels so written in the stars for you that you would be here and, and be doing all of this. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I think, um, I believe totally what, what you're saying. I mean, I think that art is a kind of 
is a communion. That's why people are drawn to it. It's mm-hmm. not, ju- for me, it's not just, yes, it's the stories, but I'm always thinking, why are we so, why are we so fascinated with storytelling? Why is it mm-hmm. so, what does that satisfy? And it's, it's that touch point of human connection. It's, ju- it's the same feeling as a, a friendship or mm-hmm. a lover or any communion with another person. You know, when you feel that, deep connection of, of where you touch someone's soul or you really see into a person's inner life in a profound way, that is a transcendent experience in life. You know I mean? That's, that's where like, like we touch God, I think. You know, that's where we, that's where we're all trying to, to be in touch with, you know, whether it's in, through a church or whether it's through our relationships or, mm-hmm. you know, that's that common thing. So I know I feel like there is something really uh, primal and sacred about Mm-hmm. art and storytelling and yeah. whether it's a painting which is someone expressing whatever was going on for them and they put it on a canvas or a piece of music or I mean when you have a friend who's you know by friends who are amazing musicians and when I watch or listen to a friend of mine yeah. play extraordinary music I feel like I'm touching their soul and it's quite different than just hearing a beautiful piece of music anyway which mm-hmm. is also an amazing experience so yeah I feel every day is so lucky to do what we do you know yeah to get to try and you know reach that to achieve that kind of transcendent experience which is hard <laughs> it is but god when you get it when you've really just been in it and i think about those experiences where i've been so deep in a moment with another performer and then it's over and it's almost like waking up out of a dream like you've been in some other place and you're right it it does feel like transcendence and and i think what's interesting is the thing we're touching is like unadulterated spirit. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think that can feel holy. I think that can feel magical. And it's not lost on me, but it is, I guess it's not been lost on me before, but it's really occurring to me in this moment as I think about the questions I wanted to ask you. There's something about how what a spiritual act it is to show up for other people. And I think that's something that really exists at the root of, you know, activism and and often at the root of activism is storytelling, is is telling other people's stories, hearing other people's stories, having empathy for other people's experiences, and how interesting that those things kind of come around and meet in the middle in the way you grew up, in this generational legacy of storytelling, and, and in a family with a long history of, of activism and, and philanthropic action. And, and do those things kind of strike you as going hand in hand? Did they both inspire you as a kid? Um, <laughs> the activism part, not so much. I mean, I knew, I was aware and admired, you know, but, but I didn't, I, I don't think I was mature enough to uh, be inspired by mm-hmm. it. Just to be honest, I was more into being a kid and I don't think I understood it. Yeah. Uh I mean, it's so hard. I came at the to time. appreciate it as an adult. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a teenager, look, I, 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 frankly, my kids were much more drawn, not so much in high school, but you know, like as as they approached young adulthood, both of them were like really felt this call to service and how do hmm. I, you know, give back? And it took me a little longer to discover that muscle, but I did watch my parents, both my parents mm-hmm. and my grandparents were very, very engaged on that level. So I suppose that was, you know, they sort of set an example mm-hmm. that I knew I was supposed to follow. 
but it took me, I think, honestly, I think it was a maturity issue when I started to realize how central that is to a happy life. Mm. And, and as you mentioned, how connected it is to the work that we do as storytellers. So what, what did you grow up witnessing, I guess, or, or being exposed to? What were they passionate about? Well, my mom, who, as, as I told you, was a, was a painter. She um, taught at a community center. I grew up in L.A., and she taught art at a, at a community center. And she, like, formed these deep relationships with the kids and their families. And, you know, it was in a disadvantaged community. And she would have, like, the kids who she taught, I developed really close relations. They became, like, my friends and they would come hang out at her house and she would have a you know Christmas time we would always have a she'd have a Christmas party for all the kids mm. and the family they would come over and she'd make sure that some of these kids really were in tough circumstances and she made sure everybody got Christmas presents and you know had a place but they were sort of just always around and um so hers was on a very grassroots mm. level and it became a big part of her life and you know the thing about my mom that I really have come to admire is she had like she got in there, you know, wasn't just mm -hmm. writing a check or doing something, you know, doing volunteering mm -hmm. or something. I mean, she did volunteer several hours a week to teach, but that that was only her jumping off point. She got in there. And um, on my father's side, it felt uh, he also was very, very committed. But he um, something that he was very involved in was the Motion Picture Television Fund. My grandfather was one of the founders of it in 1920. Wow. One, I guess. So, you know, he was sort of drawn in to follow the legacy of his parents. I mean, that was, you know, super important to him, which for people who don't know what that is, it's an organization that gives back to people who work in the entertainment industry because mm -hmm. our business is a very insecure one. And, uh, you know, when you fall in hard times, you know, it's a freelance business and you can find yourself successful one year and then on your ass mm -hmm. the next year. And, um, you know, MPTF will pay your rent or provide social services or addiction mm -hmm. counseling or healthcare. And then there's this incredible, as you know, I'm sure you know, this amazing retirement home. And uh, so anyway, so that, that was a real passion of my, my father's as well. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too, because the legacy of them both is so inspiring. I mean, you're, you know, your dad was a producer. I'm saying this to you like you don't know. I'm really saying this to the audience at home. <laughs> Your dad was a producer mm -hmm. and, and also a World War II veteran. And, you know, in, in my, like, digging up all of my research, you know, I learned about your grandfather and, and his being born in Poland uh, to a Jewish family. Mm -hmm. And your father fought in World War II. And I, I, I just think about that kind of family history and really the, the legacy of service and of, of standing up for people, both of being an oppressed people and of of coming um, to the aid of, of one's neighbor. And then, you know, not to really bring it back around to performances, because I don't know how how you feel about it personally, but then you played the president, you know, the, the expert <laughs> on policy. And I, I wonder, does that real world legacy and also some of what I imagine you had to dive into to play that character, does that make you really have to take a moment with what we're witnessing in the world now because you know so many artists are asked to use their voices and and stand up for justice and for what's right and and you have personal ties to generations old extremism and its risks to the harm done to communities and and now we see versions of that all rising again and and i, I imagine that that's a pretty interesting intersection for you to sit at 
you know, as a man, as a performer, as a father, as as the descendant of these men, you know, what a what a moment. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, for me, the way all my engagement with activism and and is is evolved on a more personal level as I've sort of gotten into it over the past 20 or whatever years, mm-hmm. I've now then come to very much appreciate what my forebears did. And I've gone, I've sort of noticed it almost like I was unaware of it <laughs> as a kid, as opposed to it being like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I, mm. I mean, one of the things that I just want to say that I'm so impressed about you is from the moment you hit you know, got notoriety, you immediately put that to work in terms of activism. And I've been so impressed with, with what you've been doing the past 10 or 15 years. You know, it's like, um, Tony, because we do have a platform and you're always so intentional and um, substantive about your approach to it, which honestly was, you know, for me, the way it evolved in terms of my connection to any kind of services I found celebrity when I first started to experience it, it made me really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt fraudulent somehow. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I really loved being an actor once I was allowed to act. You know, first it's hard to break in. And then yeah. once you do, I, I, the work itself was great. But it took me a few years to be in a, you know, to get any notice, really, mm-hmm. like where you were quote unquote famous or whatever. And when that started happening, I'd been a sort of struggling actor. And all of a sudden, everyone, the lights were shining on me and people were taking my picture. And I was like, what? This is like, I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so it felt very, very shallow to me. I understood that it was, we, we were selling a product and it was transactional and it was a necessary part of the business. But it just, I don't know. I thought it would be really cool, mm. but it ended up not feeling that way. So and then I thought, wow, it took me like a couple more years to realize, oh, no, no, but there's a, there is power here. So how can I leverage this attention that I'm getting mm. to actually do something that feels substantive and meaningful to me and to other people? Mm. Then I started searching for ways to give back or to use the platform that we've been given. And, when, and it did, it took me a while to find it because it's hard to find something that's meaningful to you because you get asked, like you said, a lot you know, we get asked to, to show up at things or to speak on behalf of things. But I quickly realized, you know, just this was before social media. So but it's the equivalent of, you know, posting on Instagram, you know, for a cause. It felt very shallow. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, how do I really find things that matter to me and then really roll up my sleeves and engage in a meaningful way? And I started finding after some splashing around very organically, you know, a few organizations and causes that I started to get really passionate about. And in fact, connected with my storytelling, one was criminal justice reform, which came out of a a film that I was making as a director and producer, you know, that I found out about this organization called the Innocence Project, Mm. which pioneered DNA testing for you know, freeing wrongfully convicted people. And mm-hmm. they are now at the forefront of criminal justice reform. It's an incredible organization, which I'm now deeply involved in. But that came out of storytelling. And then over the years, other things have added on in politics too, which I sort of came to, again, organically, just, you know, I remembered when I was, um, you know, when I've been asked to help out with political campaigns, I'm like, okay, but I'll only do it if I can actually help, if I can be of help mm-hmm. and do it in a substantive way. I don't want to just, I'm, you know, 
happy to say I support you, but I'm not going to be like showing up events to have my picture taken. If you want to use me, really use me. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I forgot, I found out how thrilling and fascinating that world is, yeah. you know, as well. So, yeah. and then you feel like, well, we're, yeah, at those moments, cause our careers all go up and down and at some moments where, you know, the lights are all shining on us and then the lights divert somebody else for a while and then they come back to you. And so when you have those moments where you're hot, I feel like it, it feels so much better now that I'm like, okay, having a hot moment, how can we put this to use? Yeah. You know what I mean? Not just in a careerist way. Not, I mean, we all want to get our next job and capitalize, you know, capitalize on our success yeah. and all that and from a business point of view, but it really feels good to do it, to, to do it, to use it to actually have an impact on other people's lives. That mm-hmm. is, that's really cool. And I think it's so much in the spirit of what we do. You know, you mentioned the Motion Picture and Television Fund. The The whole nature of being an actor is kind of like being in a circus. You travel with this big band of people. You pick up, you move, you spend more time with them than you spend with your own family. And it's it's like... It is kind of like being in a circus or being in a summer camp. People think it's glamorous and, you know, you know, then they come to visit set and they're like, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, they, they, they're, they're bored in 40 minutes, but we love it. You know, we're, we're like a little gang of weirdos. And, and I think sure. that whether it's supporting our own, um, really supporting our own, you know, our unions, our construction guys, the transpo teams, the, the camera people, we really love being part of a team. And when you can take your celebrity, which can feel very isolating, as you mentioned, it's like we, all of a sudden you're alone. You're like, where's all my people? They, you know, you, you get this kind of flashlight put in your face. It feels like an immense privilege to be able to grab that flashlight and shine it on someone or something else. Uh, a group that could use totally. the spotlight um, more than than we might, and you know, the I think the irony as I've as I've gotten older in this business is I realize most of us are very uncomfortable being in the spotlight. We just want to like go to summer camp and make art with the other weirdos. <laughs> when the lights are on us, we're like, this feels yeah. really really strange. So how do I do something better than what this feels like with all this attention? Exactly. That's exactly how I feel mm. and have always felt that way. And it feel it, it's, it's, I love the, you know, the thing about the circus. I always use that, <laughs> that metaphor because it's exactly what it feels like. I mean, even my, my older daughter, who's a, a writer, Anna, you know, when she was like, I guess she was in college or whatever. And she, she knew she wanted to be a writer and in, in the, in the business and stuff like that. And so she was interning on a TV show and she had been, during the school year, she'd been working like in the writer's office mm. and they said, well, do you want to go be in a PM production over your summer break? And she was like, sure. So she came to New York where the show shot. I can't even remember what show it was gone, but, um, but it's shot in New York and her first day of work, they said, um, okay, uh, meet, uh, ninth Avenue and 14th street, uh, at five o'clock. You know, and that's and you'll start that or your first day of work, and they'll you'll meet the sort of person who's the head PA and all that, and they'll 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 put you work. So she's a great. So she, she calls me up about five thirty the next morning and says, "Dad, I'm just walking home from work. We just finished." And they, I said, well, "You started at five five in the afternoon." She said, "Yeah, I got there, and this person just handed me a walkie-talkie and told me to like stop people from walking down the block." 
And then I didn't see anybody again for 12 hours. (laughs) And I stayed all night long on the street corner while they were shooting like two blocks away. And then they came and collected my walkie-talkie and told me to go home. (laughs) I was like, and I said to her, I said, welcome to the circus. Uh Uh (laughs) She was like walking down the streets of Manhattan at, you know, quarter to six in the morning, having spent, stood on the street corner. And and, uh, it's so, it's so funny. But it was like, that's what the circus is. And some people go, are you crazy that you would do that? And other people just go, I don't know. I love it. I love it. It's super weird and I love it. Yeah. Oh man, that is so funny. And that's it. I mean, that's just it. You just show up and you do it all night and you come back again the next day. Oh my God. I I have to ask because I think and this is just from a like a pure um I'm I'm removing myself from like peer and interviewer and I'm going really into my you know growing up in the movies that made me want to be an actor fan moment when you say that there was a moment where all of a sudden there was a lot of attention and you were like what's happening are you are you referring to after ghost premiered mhm yeah <laughs> how yeah ghost was the first thing up until <sighs> ghost I was like I was working mm-hmm. but I guess <laughs> I mean, I get, when I look back, I was doing pretty well, but to me, it felt like I was just constantly unemployed yeah. um, in my first years and couldn't, I just felt like I couldn't break in to mm-hmm. get any traction. And then all of a sudden, but by a miracle, I got, you know, this big part in this movie. And, um, but even then we still had no idea if it was, anyone was going to watch it. Right. And then overnight it became this massive you get if you get one of those in a career you're so lucky and if you get a couple you're like you know but that was yeah it was like an out-of-body experience that thing it was just like no one knew what it was no one had any awareness of it and then all of a sudden overnight it became this giant hit so um and then everyone was like oh you're that dude (laughs) you know yeah it was very exciting it was was really a thrilling time I mean what and what a film just what a what a conversation. What a moment. Was it so surreal for all of you? I mean, you, Patrick, Whoopi, Demi, I, I imagine none of you had any idea what was coming. No, you know, when I was the sort of newbie of the group, I, I don't know. I think when we were making it, look, I was just so, every day I was pinching myself because I could not believe that I was getting this opportunity mm. to do this. And I was like, Dude, if no one sees this movie, I've had this experience. Like this is, it was, it was just amazing. Mm. Uh, and while we were doing it, I don't know. I guess one of those weird things when I read this script, I thought, God, this could be really commercial. This, this, this um, sort of pushes a lot of buttons. This mm-hmm. film it was one of those. It was one of those movies that like was like, romantic and kind of scary and funny. It had all these different genres kind of blended into one. Yeah. While we were making it, we felt like it was good. Like we were, it was inspiring and fun and it seemed really like it could be good, but so would no, no idea. You never know, as you know. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw the finished film, I was like, wow, if this is not a hit, someone screwed up. <laughs> you know, then the marketing people did not do their job. Like this right. movie works. And if this doesn't, who knows? It may, may no one may go see it, but I just had a feeling like if they do their job right, this could this could really work. So I, I did feel like you just you never know. I mean, I've yeah. been in so many things that, that I thought were great, and no one saw them. Mm. 
you know, I've had my heart broken so many times of things that I was just deeply passionate about that just never, mm. just never found an audience. So, so no, you just never know, you know, and, and like I said, I was the new kid, but, you know, Patrick had had sort of a string of movies that hadn't quite worked at that moment. And Whoopi too, you know, she, you know, was a star for sure, but she had a few that, you know, things that weren't, didn't do so well at the box office right before that. And, mm. you know, Demi was still, that was the thing that made her a star. So she'd been working for a number of years and was kind of, you know, everyone thought she was going to have a big career, but she hadn't kind of busted out yet. Yeah. Uh, so we, no one, no one knew. It was wow. one of those very, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, yeah, I look back on it with gratitude and, and a lot of fondness. It was really an exciting time. And my wife, the, the one of the most exciting things, my wife Jane, who's an incredible production designer, was the production designer on that movie. Is that how you two met? So, no, no, no. We met. God, we were already married. Um, oh, oh, we my met gosh. years before, several years before we met. When I was still in college, my very first professional job was working at a theater, a summer theater festival um, called the Williamstown Theater Festival. And Jane was like a young designer there. She was doing scenic design for for theater at that time. And then she's a few years older than me. So her career kind of took off from there when I was still at finishing school and she became like a very hot production designer. And when I was really struggling as an actor, she was already doing all these big movies and everything. And um, the way I got that part in Ghost was Jane kept coming home. She was on the movie and she kept coming home going, you know, they haven't cast the villain and there's this great part and you should bug your agents. And I literally couldn't get an audition. I kept calling my agents and they were like, nope, they don't want to see you. And uh, I could, and only because Jane was on me every night. I was like, they're not, they want a star. They want a big name. They're not going to, I can't even get in the door. And I just, finally, my agent's assistant said, Tony, you should get seen for this. I'm going to, I'm going to get you an appointment. And uh, he, the assistant got me in the room oh and I ended up getting, gosh. then, you know, months later after they tried to get a star, they couldn't get a star for the part. And then, they like saw my audition tape and were like, Oh, that guy's good. Let's bring him back. Wow. And then they couldn't, they were like, that's Jane's husband. Oh my God. <laughs> it was one of those weird kismet things. So oh. that was the other really awesome thing about that is that we got to do it together and she designed these amazing sets. And um, yeah, it was really, uh, that was, it was a magical time. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. And, and okay. So that, that's this major sort of pivotal moment in your career what happens next? How, how do you decide what to do next when you've had a movie, Ugh. you know, explode around the globe like that? How, I feel like I would be paralyzed with decision fear. Yeah, that, that's pretty right. I, <laughs> I, I had no clue. I sort of had no idea what to do. The mistake that I made was I sort of said to my agents, okay, <laughs> I've done that. Here you go. We've got this. So tell me how, tell me what happens next. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. I felt like I did all the work. I delivered this hot thing and now you guys go do your thing. Mm. And I just assumed they were going to provide me with the plan. And that's not how it works. And I didn't, I learned that the hard way, you know? So like, they just, it doesn't work that way. You got to take responsibility for mm -hmm. your own career. One of the good things I did was that same year, actually, you know, when I got the job, I was actually doing a play at that same theater where I met Jane years before. Mm. 
And this play ended up transferring to New York City. And I decided at the moment when Ghost was kind of raging in the theater to do this play in New York. And people were like, what are you, are you crazy? You're going to go to a play now? You got this hot movie out there? And I was like, yeah, but I'm, I have no scripts coming my way. I don't know. I, I'm going to, I love this part. I'm going to go do it. And, and the play ended up being a real success and um, a great thing artistically for me to do. And that was all awesome. What play was it? It was called The Sum of Us. Uh, mm. It was this beautiful Australian play about a son and a father and the son is gay and the father is completely accepting of his homosexuality. And this was at a time when that was not the case. And in those days, Australia was even further behind than the States, but it was still, you know, like in the 80s and early 90s, man, Mm. it was very different than it is nowadays. But it was this beautiful story where the father and the son share a house together and both men are unable to find love in their life because people are so freaked out that they have such an accepting relationship. So the men that my character brings into the home are flipped. They can't handle the fact that my dad is so embracing of my sexuality and so okay with it. And they run away. Wow. And the women that he gets involved with, because my mother is dead, are completely unable to accept that he has a homosexual son. And so these two men live, it's this beautiful, heartbreaking play about, you know, the love between a son and a father. And at a time when the AIDS epidemic was raging Mm -hmm. in New York and Mm -hmm. only, you know, a year or two before, the president of the United States had only uttered the word AIDS. Mm -hmm. And there was just tremendous stigma. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we did this play, we did it at a theater in Greenwich Village, which was, you know, the red hot center of the gay community. And... It was a it was an important piece of work. It really, really mm-hmm. was, and a beautiful play and very meaningful. Thing. You know, it's one of the roles of my career that I really cherished uh, having done. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but back to your your question. You know, but then the movies I ended up doing were not very were not very good. Like I did a couple that didn't work, and I wasn't sure. Like, do I just take a job because someone's offering me a job? It was hard for me to say no to a job because I wasn't used to saying no. Yeah. So you can offer all these things that are not maybe so good. Maybe you shouldn't take them. But even then, you know, my my agents were like, okay, if you want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Really? really? Yeah. So I just kind of was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. I just didn't have a sense. So then for me, you know, doing that for a few years and then having had the experience of being like super red hot. And then after a few movies don't work, I'm suddenly not so hot. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get, you know, I was working, thank God, and able to support my family, but Mm -hmm. not getting those great parts. And I was like, what? So that's really when I turned to directing and producing because I thought, oh, that's how I'll take control of my career. And it, that was great. That was my solution. That's so It gave me more of a sense of self-determination. Yeah. It's just always fascinating to me that actors will be punished if their movies don't turn out great when we're the ones in the least control of the movie. Like we show up and we do the thing and then all the footage goes away to someone else. We don't make the decisions, you know, in the editing room or, or about the sound or the soundtracks or, and it's, it's, it is, it's very, it's very funny to um, face a thing that you don't control. And I think about having the same anxiety, you know, because you don't know what will work. You don't know what to say yes and no to at least for me in my early career, my God, I was like, I can't tell the difference on the page. Like sometimes, sure, you read, I don't know, a Steven Soderbergh movie, like, yeah, obviously it's going to be good. Mm -hmm. But with these movies 
where you don't know who anybody is. And I'm like, I like the story or I like this character. I have no idea if this is going to be good or bad. And I was on a TV show that went on for so long that I was just so desperate to go do something else to like try on someone else that, yeah, there were some hiatus movies I did that were terrible, but I had a really good time, you know, out adventuring with new people and, and in new places. So it's like, you got to chalk it up to experience. When I, that's, that's, that's so true. And, and that at the end of the day, you know, I, I came to a kind of a, this idea of trying to game the business, uh, um, mm. I have always found to be a f- fool's game. I think there was maybe some people who just have a real nose for what's commercial mm. um, or their particular brand, I guess is the the term people use now. But, um, you know, there are, there are certain performers and stars who have a mm. real vision about themselves in the marketplace. And I really admire those people. I do not have that. I've never, I don't have that muscle. I don't understand it. Mm. I'm unable to do it. You know, so for me, what I came to personally was in terms of as an actor, I have like three criteria that I evaluate a job with. Oh, what are and those? None of them are, is this going to be good for my career? Is this going to be a hit? The three things for me are, who am I working with? Mm. Are they people that that inspire me or I'm excited to work with Mm. is the role something that I feel like I can do something with. Like, Mm. can I really, whether it's big or small, can I really, is there real sub, can I do something special with this role? Mm. And then the third thing is how much money am I going to make? And for me, I've sort of come to this formula. If it, if it satisfies two of the three criteria, I'll take the job. Mm. You know, if it's a, if it's a really interesting role with great people, I'll do it for free. If it's amazing money with, people I'm dying to work with, the script, may eh, not so great. I'll be like, great, that'll be a really cool experience. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then mm-hmm. if it's some um, a great role for good money and I don't know who I'm working with, I'll do that. So, mm-hmm. and I found that to be pretty good. And it's all about what, you know, my personal connection in a sense and what mm-hmm. my personal experience is going to be on it. Thinking, is this going to be a success? When I look back on all the movies that I've done, and I've done dozens of them now, <laughs> I could no more have predicted which ones were going to work. Uh, and, and I've been in some big hit movies. Mm. I had would have no idea which ones. And then ones that I just am so proud of that, I, you know, you would say, what? I'd never heard of it. You know, and then you can go and you've said yes. And But I made a f- decisions early on where I thought, oh, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Man, every one of them was just a disaster yeah. for me. Oof. I, looking back now, whether it's, a business decision or or signing on to a film, anytime I've had to be talked into something, I look back and go, I was right. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Even in my personal life, honestly, as I say that, I'm like, no, anytime I've had to be talked into something, it's been a mistake. But you, Mm -hmm. you know, you live and and you learn. I'm, I'm curious about that idea that, you know, you mentioned getting into this about how you decided to sort of rest some control because as performers, we, again, we often have the least of it. And you said that there was a point where you started producing and directing, and it was a, a film you produced that led you to criminal justice reform. And, and so I guess this question's twofold, which is how, how did you begin producing and directing? And then, and then how did you find a, 
that kind of a lens for projects as you got farther down that road? Okay, so so what happened for me was about a year or two after Ghost, um, when I started to feel like it was slipping away from me, to mm. be honest with you. Uh, you know, mm. I, like the next movie I did didn't do well. And and then uh, suddenly I was like, wait, but why I'm not. So I started to get very frustrated and I did a couple of jobs where I had that feeling of like, well, that wasn't very good. And yeah. I, I just felt no sense of self-determination whatsoever. And, you know, my agent who'd been super, you know, I thought was my best friend was suddenly not returning my phone calls so much, you know, and it was all that stuff where you're like, oh, we're best friends now. We're like family. And then a year or two later, when you're not making so much money, it was like, why did it take him three days to call me back? You Mm -hmm. know, kind of thing. I started to go, this is not, I said, okay. So I said, when I get into my forties, I don't want to be feeling this way. I don't, Mm -hmm. this, I'm not gonna be able to survive this. This is just too crazy. So I thought this is going to mean I want us more self-determination. So the way I started approaching it was I, I didn't really have an interest in directing. I had no idea that I wanted to be a director or I'd never, I'd never thought about it. Mm. It seemed an impossible job that I had no skills for. But, so I thought, well, at some point, one of my movies will work and I'll be in a position of leverage again. And I want to know at that point, I want to have a script or a role that I want to do. So mm. the next time I'm going to hit, I can say not to my agents, find me a great job, I can say, here's what I want to do. Let's use my leverage to get this done. Mm. So that was the thought going in. So then I started reading a hundred scripts, looking for roles that I would be right for, that I could then develop the thing and be a producer on it. That was Mm. my thought. So I read a bunch of scripts, maybe like a hundred scripts and CA sent me all the scripts that they couldn't sell. So most of them were not very good, (laughs) but I did find a few that were really Quite interesting. And there was one in particular that I absolutely fell in love with. And I said, there wasn't really a part that I felt right for in it, but the writing just blew my mind. And I said, I have to meet this writer. Mm. So I met the writer and I said, what else do you have? And she said, well, I don't really have anything else at the moment, (laughs) Um, but I'm working on stuff, you know, and she was a struggling writer and uh, this script had won a lot of awards for her, but it hadn't gotten made. Mm. And I said, well, I think, I think it needs work. I think this is what I would do to it in terms of developing it. And I think these characters could be better. And, but, you know, we talked about the script and she said, you know, I love your ideas about my script. Would you produce it with me? Even if you're not sure you want to act in it, like, would you help me get it off the ground? And I I was like, okay. So we entered in this relationship and I, I said, what do you want? And I paid her a little bit of money to option the script, very little. And I said, I'll pay your rent when you can't afford your rent, I'll pay your rent. <laughs> so literally like she had a $700 a month rent. And when she was hard up, she'd go, Tony, can you pay my rent this month? And I'd send her a check and pay her rent. And that's kind of how we kept working on the script for a few years. And the script got to be really good. Wow. And initially I had approached a director who I admired, who liked the script a lot. And I said, you know, will you help us? And he was also a writer. So we worked with him for about a year and then he lost interest and sort of disappeared on us. And the script got to be quite good. And I was deeply invested in it and had a sense. I remember my father saying to me, you know, you have a really good sense of story. I think you should consider directing yourself. Like, Mm. I think you're more than just an actor. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to be an actor. Don't tell me I'm not an actor. (laughs) It's typical sort of defensive with my father. But Mm. (laughs) I started thinking about, well, maybe one day I would like to do that. So, but anyway, I had this wonderful script and I started 
trying to find another director for it. And I was meeting these directors and every meeting I had, I was like, they're going to screw it up. Like, I can't, I've worked too hard on this thing for, we've been working for a couple of years on this script. I can't give it, what if I give it to somebody and they mess it up? And it was the kind of material that could easily be done badly. There were lots of sort of cliche traps in it. Mm. And it was set in the summer of 1969, which often is an era that's done very badly. And I, and I, and I just was like scared that someone was going to screw it up. And one day I just thought, oh, I need to do this myself. Wow. I need to step up and say I'm going to direct this myself. And I'd been thinking, well, maybe I should direct a little short film or do something, put my toe in the water. And one day I just was like, nope, I'm going to do this. <laughs> As like a personal challenge. And um, I called the writer and her name is Pamela. And I said, Pam, are you sitting down? I know we've been talking to a lot of the directors, but... I think I want to direct this myself, but I don't want to do it if you don't support that. And I thought she'd get upset with me. And she was like, that's a great idea. I so wow. I decided to do it myself. And then, I don't know, it was weird because I had some profile as an actor. People then were like, oh, well, that makes sense. And, you know, my agents were like, oh, that's a great idea. Okay. And out of the blue, this is how life works. Like, this is another thing dropped in my lap after three years of work. Out of the blue, I, so I had her do another rewrite for me as the director, and I started gaining my confidence about what I was going to do with the movie. I get a call from an agent at CAA saying, Tony, uh, this script, it was called The Blouse Man at the time. The movie ended up being called A Walk on the Moon, but it was original title was The Blouse Man. He said, you, you control the rights to The Blouse Man, right? I said, uh, yeah. He said, and you want to direct it, right? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, Dustin Hoffman wants to read the script. I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, Dustin Hoffman, um, I had not shown this script to anybody. He said he was having lunch with a director who had read that script back in the day when, I, as I told you, it had won some awards and went around town and no one bought it. He always had remembered this script and Dustin was having lunch with this guy. And the guy said, oh, there's this script. I always wondered what happened with it. And Dustin wants to read it because his production company has just put together a deal to produce independent movies. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy. So I didn't, I'd never met Dustin. I was like, he said, can I send him the script? I was like, well, I don't have a copy of it. I have to print it off my computer. <laughs> so I send him, I was on my way back from a film festival. And um, so I send him the script to Dustin's office. And about two days later, I get a phone call and there's this character who was Dustin's kind of head story guy, this old playwright named Murray Shizgal. And Murray was like this, he was like, it must have been in his 70s at the time. He was this old, like, New York guy. And he's like, hello, that's Murray Shizgal uh, from uh, Punch Productions, which was Dustin's company. I read your script. I think it's very good. We'd like to make a deal with you. And I said, what? I was driving in my car. And I almost crashed the car. <laughs> he said, would you come see me in my apartment? And so I'm like, uh, yes, sir. So I go up to Murray's apartment <laughs> and he sits me down and he's like, so, um, you want to direct this movie, right? And I was thinking he was going to say, we can't let you do it. And I was like, uh, yes. He said, good. That's a great idea. Dustin loves actor directors. That's a fantastic idea. I was like, oh, okay. He said, how much money do you want to make it for? And I had been struggling to get the budget under $2 million and I couldn't, I was trying to say, well, and I was about to say, well, I've been trying to get it under 2 million. And he said, you think you could do it for $6 million? And I said, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I think we probably could do that. <laughs> so basically, that was like October. Oh. And by December, we were casting. And by May, we were in production. Wow. I was directing a, what turned out to be an $8 million independent feature. And it was like, it just like all came to life. So it was a we- that weird thing that I'm sure you've experienced where like, you kind of set your intention towards something that's impossible mm. and you just kind of grind away at it. And it seems mm. like you're nowhere and it's never going to happen. And then like light- a lightning bolt strikes and suddenly something finds its moment. And, yeah. and then that, that movie ended up, you know, it was this joyous experience and it ended up getting into this to Sundance and, like got a lot of heat on it. And then that sort of gave me the beginnings of a, you know, a directing career. And, mm-hmm. and um, it got sold, you know, bought by Miramax. And, and it was like, you know, it was, uh, it ended up being a good thing. So, and, and also I fell in love with directing. I had no idea mm-hmm. I would have any interest in the job. And as soon as I started doing it, I was like, oh my God, this is the best job ever. Oh, so I just love that. So that's how I started doing it. And it's funny because, you know, you said it's like something fell into my lap after three years of work. And everyone always from the outside thinks it's an overnight success. But there's these years and years, to your point, that you're just grinding away. And your story is just reminding me. There have been times where, to use your three-year example, I'm like, did I give up on something at two years and ten months? Like, was it just going to take two more months? And I, I don't know. I think it's so great for folks at home listening to hear you talk about what the work really takes because it's such a good reminder to keep going and that just because dreams might have a long lead time doesn't mean they won't come true. So it's so, it's so cool. It's so true. I say this, I mean, look, I say it to my kids all the time Mm. and, and any artists that I, you know, if you're listening to the right voices inside of you, Mm. again, like you said, not the voices that are convincing you what you should do, what you're supposed to do, what you think you want to do to to make a million dollars mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, it's like that's a other, another thing. But, it, you know, if you have a creative soul and you want to do something, you know, creative or, or anything, if you have a mm-hmm. passion to do something. I've said this a lot in sort of like talking to younger people, but the best advice I ever got in my life was my brother-in-law was a jazz musician, a very, very successful jazz musician. And when I was in college and desperate to be an actor and really had decided this is what I wanted to do with my life, but I have no idea if I had any talent. I was having lunch with him one day and I was like, oh man, I just don't know. And he said, Tony, when I was your age, I was like a kid from Indiana and I came to New York City dreaming to be a jazz musician Mm. with no idea. And he said, I knew that if I committed 100% to the passion that is driving me. Either it will work out the way I dream it will, or it will lead me to something else that I don't even know about. Mm. He said, but I won't wake up 20 years from now wishing I had tried, but I didn't because I was too scared. He said, so if you commit 100%, mm. that's the that is the solution because it will lead you somewhere you don't even know about. Mm. And that, I, that to me was the thing that I have le- I've fallen back on so many times in my life where I'm like, I have no idea if this is going to work at all, mm-hmm. Why? but I made a commitment. So I'm going to commit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
Oh God. I mean, I could, the six years before that I was an actor, before I got ghost, I literally, I mean, I remember there were days when I was weeping in my living room going, this is never going to work out. Like no one is interested or you get rejected for the 5,000th time or people tell you, you have no talent or that you're, it's just, you should just give it up. And, and literally the only thing that kept me going was going, I made a commitment to do this. So I'm going to do it until I see a path elsewhere. And wow. then all of a sudden, out of the blue, some miracle happens, you know, in the, in the directing that movie was like that, or so many things, mm-hmm. you know, I found it on projects where even scripts that I've been developing, the movie I mentioned to you that I was about this Innocence Project case. That, uh, yes. I, uh, the movie took me eight years to get going. It was on and off again for eight years. Eight and years. I just kept at it because it was a true story. And I'd made a commitment to the woman whose life it was about. And I said, I'm going to tell your story. I, mm. I'm, you have my commitment that we're going to do this. And then when the circumstances were right, it happened and we made the film. Mm. And I was like, wow, man, I could easily have just walked away from this because it would have been easier. Mm-mm. But I would have missed out on this extraordinary experience, you know, creative and um, very fulfilling thing. Well, and what a thing to give the kind of platform that art can give to this truth of wrongful incarceration, this thing that happens yeah. in our country all the time that we want to ignore. And I I imagine in your subject, in the woman whose story you told, I imagine you made a friend for life. Oh, no question about it. Yeah, I mean, this story, mm-hmm. the film is called Conviction with um, Hilary Swank and Sam Rockwell ended up uh, being the brilliant actors who were in it. And um, this was a story about a, a woman named Betty Ann Waters who whose brother was convicted of murder and they had been, you know, poor kids growing up uneducated. She never mm-hmm. got out of 10th grade and Kenny was in and out of jail his whole life, really. Mm-hmm. But he got convicted for this murder that he didn't commit. And she was the only person who believed he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was like, he's a loser. You know, he's, we knew he was going to end up in jail one of these days. And so he went away for murder with life in prison with no chance of parole. And Betty Ann refused to ad- admit that he was guilty. And, and what she ended up doing was she said, I'm going to get you out of here. And she went back to school. She got her GED. She went to college. She went to law school, oh. became an attorney just to, with the sole objective of getting her brother, finding a way to get her brother out. Wow. Had no interest in practicing law. It took 18 and a half years. And she finally, with the help of the Innocence Project, who she wrote when she was in law school, she found some DNA evidence in a basement of a courthouse in Boston and got her brother exonerated after 18 and a half years in prison. Good and, um, for them. Yeah, she, it was an amazing story. And wow. she is one of my dear friends, you know, yeah. Wow. So, do, do you think yeah. that that kind of storytelling, the potential to expose injustice and your your platform coupled with, you know, your family history, do, do you see that? When, you know, when you look at Anna, one of your daughters, you know, co-creating the political playlist and educating mm-hmm. all of us about what's, you know, what's happening with so many elected officials, do you go like, yeah, that's my kid. That makes sense. Oh, wow. Um, sort of the, the inverse of that is what I feel. Honestly, really? I, I feel um, proud that that's my, what am I, I, I'm sort of impressed and amazed. I'm like, I wish I was like that at Mm-hmm. At her age, you know, um, I, there are certain moments where I'm like, oh, no, I'm really glad I did this as a parent because I know that inspired her. Like, for example, with Anna with Political Playlist, which is this platform that they launched six months ago to 
educate people about young leaders in Congress under mm-hmm. 45 years old and really to engage young vote, millennial voters. But anybody, mm-hmm. you know, it's this awesome uh, platform at you know, politicalplaylist.com for people who are interested. It's um, so cool. But yeah, it's cool. And the way that Anna's sort of got interested in politics is my wife, Jane, and I have always been real political. And But in 2008, she turned 18 and... Um, I was going to the Democratic convention where Obama was the nominee, you know, and I, you were, weren't you there in 2008 uh, at the, in I Denver? think I saw you, you in 2016. I saw you. 2016, yeah. Yeah, I think I yeah, saw you right, yeah, in Philadelphia. at an yeah, inauguration, but I know I saw you in Philly in 2016. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, but in, but so in a way we went to Denver, which was an extraordinary thing. And, and I saw her at 18, it was her first time voting being like very inspired um, about politics. So in that way, I did feel like, oh yeah, great. And the family legacy thing, it's a very gratifying thing to see both Anna and my younger daughter Tess, you know, really joining those service-oriented aspects of our family instinct. Um, But it wasn't preordained. I wasn't like, oh yeah, of course they did that. It's more like, wow, look, they're doing it and isn't it wonderful to be a part of something that's multi-generational. That's In so the cool. same way that I feel very grateful that I uh, have found a way to kind of engage in my own way. Mm. And that then that is thereby, therefore connected to what my parents and grandparents did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As opposed to just kind of joining what they did, I had to figure my own way into it. Mm-hmm. But so being put in the same way, like show business, like I, you have to make your own way in this business. Yeah. I, I don't know how you could be an, like, I don't know how my dad couldn't give me a job. You know, I had to figure out how to forge my own way. But mm-hmm. once I was able to do that, what a blessing to be a part of a legacy. You know, that yeah. to me, I feel so lucky and privileged to have that. Yeah, I love that. And you do, it's another, I think, common misconception that, if you're somebody's kid, it's easy for you. And I think in a way you, you have to work harder to prove yourself, you know, because because everyone thinks maybe mm-hmm. you're in the room because you're so-and-so's kid. And it's neat to see when you love something, you know, how you'll fight for it, how you'll work for it. And like you said, you spent years just like sobbing in your apartment, wondering if it was going to happen. And here you are with this incredible filmography. And I mean, God, even what you guys did with Scandal, you like rocked. You rocked the world with that show. You, you know, you you challenged all of these ideas, and I don't know. I I just think it's it's so exciting to see all the things that you know you've you've done and made, and and even what's coming up. I mean, you have two huge new projects coming out. You you did um, this new Nat Geo thing, the Hot Zone, Anthrax, right. mm-hmm. all about what what happened. You know, post. 9-11 and and you're doing King Richard for Warner Brothers. I mean, can you tell us about these? What what can we expect? Yeah. And maybe why why you chose these these projects? Yeah, they're both really, really great projects. Mm. King Richard is the story. You check of, all the boxes uh, on the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, King King Richard, <laughs> yes, they definitely check all the boxes on the list. Um uh I King Richard that. is the story of Venus and Serena Williams and primarily the story of their father, Richard Williams, who was their their coach. And mm-hmm. Will plays, Will Smith plays um, Richard. And it's about them when they were little girls, how they got into tennis and became champions. And um, it was all this vision 
that Richard Williams had. Mm -hmm. He literally, for those who don't know, had never picked up a tennis racket in his life. (laughs) He saw a tennis match on television before his girls were born. And he was raising his three stepdaughters uh, by his wife. And uh, he was watching this match and he said, that's, he saw this this woman tennis player get a check for $40,000 for a tennis tournament. And he was like, that's a good way to make money. <laughs> and he wrote something like an 80-page manifesto, this plan. They were going to have two girls and they were going to become the number one and number two champions in the world. And he told his wife, and she was like, you're crazy, but let's have two more kids. They had these two girls, Venus and Serena. And at four years old, he started, he taught himself to play tennis. And then he started teaching them to play. And he coached yeah. them, uh, you know, for as long as he could before they really needed professional intervention. And and he made this dream come true. And so I played this guy, Paul Cohen, who was their first professional coach, who he kind mm-hmm. of cold called. I was, uh, Paul was McEnroe's coach. And he cold called this guy and said, you need to see my kids play and brought them to him. And Paul Cohen, you know, took them on. And um, anyway, it's really the odyssey of, of, of the family and how they they did it. So anyway, it's a really great script and um, it was a really fun project to do. And then, and yeah, that'll be out, um, I think like November, December uh, of this year. And then the hot zone anthrax is the second season of this series that Nat Geo did this limited series. Um, last year, the hot zone was about the Ebola crisis. Juliana Margulies did it. And um, mm. this year, as you mentioned, it's about the anthrax attacks after nine 11 and um, it's a six-part series exploring that crime and the murder investigation. The investigation, five people were killed, and uh, it was a terrible time. And um, it was something I didn't I remember when it happened, but I play the, this uh, scientist named Bruce Ivins, who was the lead anthrax researcher for the U.S. biodefense for the military. And um, he wow. struggled with mental illness and ended up becoming central in this investigation and was as a fascinating complicated character and someone I knew nothing about. Uh, so, yeah, so you sort of follow Bruce's story. And then Daniel Day Kim, the wonderful actor, uh, plays the FBI agent who was the lead uh, investigator in it. And sort of you follow these two men on parallel tracks and uh, ultimately their stories converge. So they, that's a really wow. was a fascinating project, which we just finished. So, yeah. So all I can think about, and I just, I love a research project, is is the, I would imagine the very different types of prep you had to do for these projects, one of which I'm, I'm wondering, you know, did you just get to take tennis lessons for, for a while to get ready for King Richard? Did you really have Mm -hmm. to just pound the court? Wow. That feels fun though, to learn a skill like that for a job, I think feels really exciting. Oh, it's so great. I mean, like I played tennis as a kid, but I'm not, I'm not a good tennis player. And it dropped it. Like I just hadn't been playing for like 20 years, really. And Mm. so then you get this thing. And I thought, I want to, I don't want to have to rely on a stunt double to look like I know what I'm doing. Obviously, to some degree, I would have to. But so I immediately, is when I got the job for whatever month or two that I knew before I went to do it, I just played tennis every day and went to tennis coaches going, how would a coach play tennis? Like, not because that's what I had to do. So that was just super fun and, Interesting. And you want as an actor, I think what, as, as you would know, well, you don't necessarily need to be a great tennis player. You need to feel like you know what you're doing. So physically Mm -hmm. you need to be very, very relaxed and able to hit balls and be physically very much at ease. Like someone who plays hundreds of hours of tennis every week, you know? So, um, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That was super exciting. And then I, you know, the, the, the both cases I was playing a real character, real people. So yeah. um, that's also an always an interesting challenge. And um, so I cold called this man, this wonderful man, Paul Cohen, who I was playing, who was not involved with the production, but I found his email address and I just wrote him and I was like, would you be up for talking to me? So we had some really fascinating conversations and um, uh, which I wasn't able to do on the second one. Uh, Bruce is no, he actually died. Uh, so I was able to just read a lot about him, but uh, mm. yeah, playing uh, the research aspect, I just, just find this such a fun rabbit hole to go down with every project. Yeah. Did you find for hot zone were you, were you really diving deep into, you know, researching chemistry or, or biological weaponry, like how, where where do you have to go to play someone like that? Yeah, for me, that part, it de- it really depends, you know, because I, with acting, you can also get hamstrung by research. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a younger actor, I was so fascinated with research, but I do so much research that it would, I'd be so in my head about what really happened <laughs> or what it really was that I wasn't, <laughs> you know, so what I try and do personally, is I'll do enough research, again, where I feel comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, like I feel like I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but not enslaved by it. So in, mm-hmm. in the case of The Hot Zone, I did s- research in the, the science, the microbiology of what I was doing enough so that anything that I was talking about in the scenes, I knew what I was talking about. And anything I had mm-hmm. to do physically in terms of behavior that I really understood what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I did not get go down the rabbit hole of becoming a microbiologist. I knew that A, that was impossible, and B, it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Where I did need to do a tremendous amount of work was on the specific mental illness that my character was struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, that I spent a lot of time reading about, talking to people about, trying to get inside of someone who was struggling in the way that uh, that uh, Bruce was. Mm. That that ended up being much more, you know, which was not that connected to um, microbiology. Um, it had to do with mm-hmm. his childhood and childhood trauma and, um, mm-hmm. th- you know, different different issues uh, that, mm. that he struggled. And there was a, there was a, the gold of um, a biography that had been written about him, which is always... Yeah amazing resource when you have something like that. Yeah, that's so cool. Again, it just makes me think about the truth that storytelling is a vehicle for empathy. And, you know, you get Mm -hmm. to study the specifics of a person and what they do, but to figure out what makes them tick or or what makes them suffer, it's really, I just think it's so special. Yeah, the thing, the magic of it for me as an actor always is, you know, Every time I play a part, I always feel fraudulent. At first, I'm like, I'm not right for this. Like, why would they want me for Like, I'm, I don't know. This guy's so different than me. What? You know? And the yeah. more you burrow into it, hopefully, by the time you get to actually doing it, you feel like, well, this is just me. This is just yeah. another version of me. I, I completely relate to this person. And I'm just kind of doing myself in this situation, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. that... You know, I'm not, I'm not putting on a character or playing at something that's far yeah. away from me. Uh, if you do the work to get there where you feel that, that's like, you know, we never, we never get to the place we want to be. We always feel that we're falling short <laughs> somehow, which you have to learn how to just roll with that as well and go, well, I gave it my yeah. best shot. But um, 
you know, if you do feel that intimacy and empathy with a character, I was reading something, a profile, I think it was in the New York Times of some wonderful actor or actress who was saying that uh, playing a character, you have to fall in love with your character, that it's, a, it's mm-hmm. like falling in love and, you, and that's what it is. And I was like, oh, that's so great that you have to get, so whether you're, whatever the character is a villain or whatever, you have to get to a point yeah. of intimacy where you've fallen in love with the person that you're playing. And then you really yeah. find that connection. And that gets back to the thing we were first talking about, about that sort of transcendent connection with another person, another human being, mm-hmm. you know, that you are trying to bring someone to life, someone like as if they're a real living human being, you know, and you're mm. connecting with them in a way that you would with any intimate person uh, in your life, you know, and then you have the honor of telling that person's story. Mm. Yeah, it is an honor. And maybe that's why we never really feel like we get there. I mean, or maybe it's because if you ever got to the end of your destination, you'd be dead. But I, I feel like, I feel like it's the work. I feel like it's the constant desire to learn another thing or, you know, turn another stone over it. It feels, um, it just feels endlessly exciting to me. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I, I often feel like in any given project, there are just a few moments or a few times when I'm like, oh my God, that, that we found flow in that. (laughs) Like that was whether, you know, like that I walked away really feeling like I went somewhere, you know, or even if you touch it a few times in a, in a, in the scene or have a couple of moments where you're like, that, that was, I was, that was fully connected work, fully in full. It's never a hundred percent of the time, you know, if you can create the illusion for the audience that they have that experience a hundred percent of the time, that's, that's the job, but it doesn't mean you're going to feel that way. You know, we're just trying to touch to touch it, you know, and maybe there are geniuses who can sort of step in and be that, but I've not met one. I must say I've, the actors that I've met and worked with who I believe are geniuses to hear them say, they're like, no, I never get there. You know what I mean? The greats who I've met, I've never heard one of them say, yeah, man, I'm just always connected. I'm always so. Yeah. Well, it's a chase. It's a constant chase. And, and it's, it's the occasional, moment where we touch it that keeps us coming back looking for more I think that's it that's but it, it um yeah. you're right when I hear people who I think are just so incredible talk about how much work it is or you know when I've heard actors who I really look up to say oh I'm always convinced when I start a job that this is going to be the one where everyone figures out I don't know how to act at all and I'm going to get fired I'm like right. oh you feel right. that oh well so okay well I mean, I guess if a person with a bunch of Oscars at home feels that way, then I should probably accept that I'm always going to feel that way too. <laughs> totally, completely. Uh, and it's very important to make friends with that feeling. Like I just yeah. have developed a sense of humor about it. Like, yep, this is probably going to be a disaster and I'm going to fail. So all I know to do is roll up my sleeves and mm. put one foot in front of the other and see what happens. Yeah. You know, because you can actually burn a lot of energy and destroy a lot of creative energy by indulging that anxiety. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people get in their own way so much because they're like, oh my God, what if this doesn't work out? Or what if, what if I'm not good? Or what if people don't like me? Or what if I, I don't get what I'm in any department of life? You know what I mean? Where you're like, 
our fears yeah. get the better of us and we worry, oh my God, what if, what if it doesn't go right? Or what if I don't prevail? Or And you, that's just a waste of time and energy mm. and life and life force. So it's like, well, just go dive into the experience and it'll, you know, your best shot is it like, commit, just go for it. And yeah. who knows whether it's a relationship or a project or, you know. Yeah. How have you learned to do that though? To free yourself of that or, or to make friends with that feeling? Yeah. A combination of experience and psychotherapy, I would say. In my early thirties, I started to really dislike my work. I was extremely self-critical and I w- would finish a day on set or I'd finish a scene or I'd be in a play and I'd come into my you know, dressing room after performance and I would like evaluate my work and like, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And no, it's not good enough and it's got to be better. And I, I really was in my own way. And I started to think my work was getting mediocre. Like I didn't like it. I was a little tight and I didn't, there was a lack of joy and fun and play in it. So I went to a therapist. I was like, I'm, I'm in trouble. Something's, I, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And I'm not, this is not, I got to figure this out. And I literally learned skills like exercises where I could, there were like little meditations to reorganize my brain where yeah. I stopped doing that, where I was like, failure is good. Failure is okay. If I'm going to fall on my face, I'll fall on my face. And that's not yeah. a bad thing that that's not like it's counterintuitive, but it's fine. Like, and to do something and throw down and then be able to walk away and go, it is what it was, it was what it was. Like, as opposed to that thing of like, well, was it good? Was it bad? What? You know, and, and um, the, the, the sort of self-flagellation that we so often do, and I think actors particularly do, because we're so exposed, you know, like whether it's after an audition or after a performance, you know, you're like, what, what, how did that go? You know, I just publicly humiliated myself maybe. And, um, so I developed skills to do that. And then as I got better at that, I started to realize how empowering that was. And I was able to develop a sense of humor about myself mm. and be fine with like, well, maybe that wasn't so good. Okay. And then be less attached to when it does go well, not be mm. like your ego doesn't get on them. Like, that oh, was great. You know, <laughs> that was, I was a great performance. You know, now I'm like, okay, that one worked out pretty well. That was, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I was able to then go, I like that way that worked. That was good. And something mm-hmm. else go, ooh, that didn't, that, not, that wasn't at all what I thought I was supposed to, you know what I mean? And you sort of, uh, then over time, that becomes your default and you realize that that is um, your best shot at success actually, mm-hmm. is by just, I can't determine outcomes. All I can control is my process. Mm. And frankly, the process is what actually really interests me most. That's what I like about it. So why don't I just pay attention to that and pay a lot of attention to that? Mm-hmm. So then when those negative voices come crowding in, I'm like, okay, you're always there, but you're wasting my time. So shut yeah. the hell up. You know what I mean? That you just, not that those voices go away, but you start to mm-hmm. give them less credence and mm-hmm. go, shut up. You know, go meditate or something and then get back to work. Because anytime I'm giving that uh, attention is the attention I'm taking away from actually what I want to do, which is create something good. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. And I think the key, I'm, I'm really learning right now that I think the key to dealing with those feelings is a bit of a sense of humor. 
is learning to laugh at them. Because otherwise, at least for me, if I'm not laughing at them, I'm taking them seriously. And that's really a waste of my time. 100%. The sense of Mm. humor is... Sense of humor is about everything in life, but yeah, with our work and with ourselves to be able to... It's it's the key to humility for me. Uh, You know, being able to like laugh at yourself or your situation Mm. or your demons or whatever it is. Mm. It just lightens everything. And without it, man, it just gets... Life gets to be a heavy experience, you know? Truly, laughter really is medicine. I'm like, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. Apparently, they all are. So, Tony, I I have one last question for you, and I'm I'm curious because you just have so much, you know, that you do and clearly care about. And it could be, you know, professional, film, television, theater. It could be personal. It could be, you know, political with activism. What would you say when you think about the notion of being a work in progress, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? My whole life feels like a work in progress, honestly. Mm. So I, I, uh, I'm finding at my age too, I'm viewing both my creative process as a work in progress, my parenting, my marriage of now 34 years, um, Mm. my kind of, I I view it holistically. uh, And so I'm now going, okay, I'm resisting the habitual impulse to try and say, this is how it's going to, this is how it's supposed to go. Like, Mm. you know, we so often go, well, what's my plan? Like, what's my plan? Okay, Mm. so what do I want to do next? How am I, what am I going to, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a plan that that's, that's good and often very useful, but Mm. it also can be toxic in the sense of trying to get, what did we talk about? We're controlling outcomes. And because so many things, like you mentioned, scandal or something happening, that fell in my lap at 50 years old. Like, what? <laughs> I literally got a phone call from Shonda Rhimes going, you feel like playing the president? I was like, what? You know, that that was something I could never have created, the success of it, the cultural phenomenon of it. That was just a gift that, that life just dumped in my lap. And, you know, so mm. I've sort of had so many things like that, that I am trying now to look at my life very much like, what is, what is actually happening? What's going on in the present to be <laughs> played with, to be um, worked with in terms of work in progress? Like, what is the work that's actually progressing? What's actually, what's actually mm-hmm. happening as opposed to being like, okay, that job is over. I don't know what my next project is. So what, what you know, what's my plan? What am I, what do I want? What am I going to tell my agents or what script am I going to direct now? Like, how am I going to, that all just exhausts me now. Yeah. So I'm really um, putting my attention more on trying to be observant and and respond to all the little sparks that are constantly all around us that we just don't see. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because we get so in our own head about like, what I think is supposed to happen is this. Until you miss all the shit that's actually happening. So that's sort of the jag that I'm on at the moment. I love it. I, Which I is just another word for unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's so important because you're right. Sometimes our job is slow and sometimes it's it's so fast it's hard to keep up with. And And if you're always looking at what's coming next, you know, weeks go by and you realize you have no idea what you did because you weren't paying attention. Yeah. Yeah, like I had this beautiful experience this year. Uh, my younger daughter, Tess, who's an actress, 
who was just, she just got out of grad school. And um, during COVID, she was home for a while because her program got suspended and she was in school in London. And she came home and she was like, dad, we should make a film together. And I was like, okay, how do, how do, how do, we, how do we do that? <laughs> like uh, just during COVID, like what? Yeah. And I said, well, why don't you write, why don't you write one? Like, I mean, we'll figure it out. And so when she was back in London, her school resumed and, and she wrote a script and sent it to me. And I was like, this is really good. And we sort of kicked it back and forth. And then when she came home in the wintertime, she said, uh, I was about to go off to Toronto to do the the hot zone that I just told you about. And she was like, we need to do this before you leave because it needs to be shot in the winter and this is where we're going to do it. And I was like, okay. And the two of us, we got a crew together and we knew where we wanted to do it. And in a month, we sort of put together this short film with this, and found these young filmmakers, this incredibly young DP and all these people. We got this crew of eight people together and we figured it out and shot this beautiful little film and then edited it together while she was, you know, I was in Toronto. And anyway, it was just like uh, seizing an opportunity because we were in the COVID situation and wanted to do something mm-hmm. creative. And this very magical creative experience, artistic experience happened and we collaborating with one's own kid, which we had not collaborated really together before. It was it was just this thrilling thing. And we made this beautiful little film. And um, Wow. Yeah. Whereas, you know, those are the kinds of things you can miss if you're like, well, no, that's not part of the plan. That's not on the schedule or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm. So. I love that. It's amazing what you find, you know, on the other side of your plans. Totally. Well, I'm so excited for everything that's ahead. I now, I, I would love to see the short. I'm very excited about this too. Yeah, show it to you for sure. And yeah. I uh, I just am so grateful for you taking the time. Well, thank you. It was so fun talking to you, Sophia. Sophia.